Today's guest is Dr. Robert Glover, best known for being the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, which is a quite culturally impactful book. I think it introduced some ideas such as nice guy syndrome into a common conversation. And as we speak about in the conversation here, it's picked up in the last five years or so, probably because of red pill forums and a lot of the cultural conversation around masculinity and male expression and gender relations and feminism. And we go pretty deep in this conversation. I'd actually say this might be my favorite episode of the year. There's been quite a few uh, great podcasts of recent. So I don't say that lightly. We go pretty deep into some of the theories around how men have developed, but also some practical tips that he shares on being a man and recovering from Nice Guy Syndrome, if you have some. And you can also check out his, I mean, you probably heard of the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. He's got quite a few other books. Uh, one's coming out in June, I believe he mentioned, on dating. And then another one that I'm looking forward to that we discuss on emotions. And he speaks about the challenges of monogamy, which is one of my, uh, something fun that I, I will be thinking about much more. If you're interested in the mask and archetype, I'm still uh, creating a program for summoning the masculine archetype. It looks like it's going to be a 21-day challenge uh, because I've decided that putting out a bunch of video lectures about masculinity is not useful. And I actually would rather just share these ideas in, in long-form conversations like podcasts. So I'm creating a program that through micro actions and micro lessons, we can reform someone's behavior to get over something like nice guy syndrome and ultimately summon the best version of you, the best version of your mask and archetype, which is important if you're a man. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. We touch on some of those topics right now. You're listening to episode 052, Dr. Robert Glover. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, Perpetual Orgasm, Infinite Play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Glover, so happy to have you on here. I read your books like many years ago, so it's nice to meet you. It's good to meet you as well. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Um, so uh, what's actually been fun is that I think someone gave me your book maybe like six or seven years ago, and it seems to have grown in popularity. That might just be my perception, but in red pill circles, it seems like it's become more of a common, a lot of the terminology has become more common. Um, has, has that been actually, actually, I'm curious, has that been something you've seen in maybe book sales or like that yeah. has spiked up in recent years? That's, that's, that's actually a pretty accurate observation. The book came out in hardcover in 2003, so that's been 16 years ago. And, um, and you know, it, it just kind of poked along for a while. And then probably starting, as you said, about five, six years ago, my royalty check started shooting up. And uh, now I talk, you know, I do a lot of interviews these days. Uh, the book's recommended by a lot of uh, men's coaches and, and self-help people. And... Um, yeah, I, I actually spoke. I, I don't know if you call it a red pill conference, but I spoke at the 21 convention last right. October. And um, I, I, a lot of people came up and talked to me that were there and said, you know, I've read your book, loved your book. So I, I actually asked for a show of hands of maybe about 250 people there, how many people read my book and probably about two thirds or three quarters of them. So uh, I made I made the observation or joke that Perhaps my book was the gateway drug into the red pill. Um, yeah. And a lot of people, they stumble on my book first, and then they do the deeper dive and get more into the kind of go, going deeper into the red pill stuff. Yeah, actually, that's, that was actually my thought about it. Um, because uh, we'll get into the red pill in a second. But a lot of my friends and people, men I know who are totally not into their development, they're, they don't read books, they don't do anything. They know a lot of the terms in the book, like covert contracts and obviously, oh, yeah. which is really cool. Like that it's like become almost mainstream. 
Um, yeah, I, I got no problem with that. When when I when I started my own work as a, a man, probably twenty five plus years ago, um, really about all that was out there for men was like um, uh, Iron John by Robert Bly, Michael Me. You know, you could go to a drumming circle and say "aho" and you know, the talking <laughs> stick, but there really wasn't much out there. And I, it, what really excites me. Is, is that now I see that, that maybe on a foundation of those people and then my book, maybe David Data's book, Way of the Superior Man, that now there's just, you know, it, it's entered the mainstream. And um, men have a lot more resources now, thanks to people like you, the internet, you know, all over the world. There, there's men's coaches, there's men writing books. And um, I, I love it. I'm, I'm glad that that's, that's in place. It, uh, do you have a sense of what might have caused the spike, both for you and maybe? The discussion was it cultural? Was it person? You know, here here's my my theory. I'll just I'll just show you, give you my my feel on it. When I, when I went on my book tour for No More Mister Nice Guy in two thousand and three, um, you know, did a lot of interviews and and I would get asked a question a lot if I thought there would be a worldwide men's movement like you know the women's movement, and I said I didn't really think so. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I didn't think there was one unifying factor, one or two unifying factors that would bring men together. Um, maybe divorce rights and parenting rights for dads maybe kind of was the, the, maybe the biggest hot button. And the second reason I didn't think it would happen is I, I personally believe, and you know, people might debate this, I believe that that feminism has succeeded to the degree it has in terms of giving women equal rights, equal pay for equal work, things like that, uh, equal opportunity because of, of men, that, that men in, in positions of authority and power, judges, university presidents, legislatures um, said, yeah, we do need to uh, rectify these inequalities. And I didn't really see that women would band together to help rectify inequalities that men were experiencing. So I really didn't think there'd be a worldwide movement. Now, I've changed my mind, but what surprised me, and this is kind of my current read on it, I think men are looking for tribe. They're, they're looking for connection with other men. Now, they don't know that that's what they're looking for. They may think they're looking for pickup skills. They may think they're looking for help you know, to overcome their alcoholism. Uh, they may think they're looking for a divorce support group as they're going through a divorce. Um, you know, they, they may think, you know, they're, they're looking for help to, to be an entrepreneur and, and, you know, make money on the Internet. They think that's what they're looking for. But what they're really looking for is the connection of, of tribe with, with other men. And so that's really what I see happening worldwide. And whether we call it that or not, and again, it doesn't matter if guys get, in, get into the tribe through pickup through entrepreneurial coaching and support systems, through 12-step groups, through divorce support groups. We're looking for connection with other men. And that's what I think is booming, is men finding quality, conscious, authentic connection with other men. And um, I think that's what's really behind it all. It may look like it's a lot of different things, but that's what I boil it down to. Yeah, I was wondering if you thought it might have something to do with, like, I mean, Me Too is more recent, but things like that where masculinity is being attacked is kind of like forcing guys, like, oh, we need to band together. We need to, like, recognize what's true for us uh, because things aren't. I think it's the toughest time for a boy to become a man ever in the first world, at least. Yeah, you know, I and yes, I I think so. And that's that's part of what I see happening. Um, you're, you're asking all the questions and stuff I like to talk about. So. Cool. Um, <laughs> 
I, I grew up during, I, I don't know, there's been a few waves of feminism. I don't know technically which wave is which wave, but I, I was a teenager, uh, mid to late teens, during the wave of feminism that, that I'll call angry feminism, that, um, you know, women were burning their bras, they were, you know, railing against the patriarchy, uh, slogans like, you know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Every man's a rapist. An erection's a sign of aggression. I, I, I heard that stuff at my formative years. Um, I also, my mother, I, I would call her a feminist, even though she probably never would have called herself that. She trained my brother and I to be different from our father, to be self-reliant, to treat women well. She trained my sisters to not need a man, to, to be able to take care of themselves. Um, and that was very conscious on her part. So a lot of those things, I think, led to kind of the first wave of, of men becoming more conscious. Um, and so, you know, Vietnam War, feminism, more divorces, dads being around their sons less and less. Um, men, you know, we grew up and a lot of us grew up to be nice guys. We're, we're trying to please women and do it right and, and get approval. And and as most of us find out, that, that doesn't serve us very well. And that's what I found out about 25 years ago when, when I was struggling to make my then second wife happy. And I, I never could succeed at it. She was angry all the time. And she said, you got to go get help. So I did, trying to figure out why being a nice guy didn't work. Now, I think we are in another wave of angry feminism represented by Me Too. Now, I understand Me Too. I understand that um, women get violated and feel violated in ways that maybe we don't, we guys can't even understand or grasp. Um, but I'm not so much a big fan of, of, you know, women reacting to every little thing and going public with it on social media. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of men being tried in the media over anonymous stories where, where, you know, the women will not actually put their name on it and say, this man did this to me. It's anonymous. And, you know, men lose their jobs because of all it takes is, you know, oh, somebody runs an article or somebody puts something on Facebook. And, yeah. and so I'm not a big fan of that happening. But here's my big picture view of it all. And I, I think as women have gone through their own changes and started uh, either demanding certain things or lashing out at certain things. If, first of all, it hit us men by surprise, and maybe more of my generation and even a little bit older, kind of caught us by surprise. Well, what's this about? You know, what did we do wrong? And and then it, it took a little while, and we started catching on and saying, oh, okay, I think I get it. And and we men started making some adjustments. Um, and now I think we're in another wave of the women kind of making a lot of noise. And it's real easy. To, to as men to just uh, dismiss it, push it away, blah, blah, blah. That's not me. I didn't do that. But here's where I think it's a gift. I think that what's happening is, is, is waking us men up. Now, however it is we wake up, but if it wakes us up to go find tribe, to become more conscious, um, to live more within our passions, to maybe break out of some societal expectations of what, what we think it, it, we're supposed to be in order to be a guy. I really think what's going to happen is we men are going to respond to what feels like these attacks in a way, you know, we, we, we can, we can go in a hole, we can go, you know, 
you know, just stay on online forums talking all the time, or, you know, we can join men going their own way, or we can do whatever we can react and, and like hunker down and, and like go underground. That doesn't serve us. If, if what feels like an attack actually makes us more conscious, grows us, gets us more connected with other men, I believe what's going to happen is we men are then are going to be this, this great wave uh, leading of consciousness leading the way. And unfortunately, my current belief is that the women may get left behind. As they sit around complaining about this and that, and me too, and I'm a victim, the men are actually going to be moving forward in, in a very conscious way. And then it's the women they're going to have to catch up. So that's just kind of my big picture read of, of what's going on and what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, a lot of things worry me. I mean, not. So I'm of the next generation, and I grew up maybe in the next generation of feminism, like the fire versus fire, more uh, uh, post Gloria Steinem, Naomi Wolf era, and like, yeah. um, I mean, and I don't even want to go into the the women's experience. I think feminism has harmed them as well. But everyone says male millennials, my generation, are soft. Like if that's like the thing that everyone says: participation trophies. We don't stand up for ourselves. Maybe we have the most nice guys per uh, for the population. I don't know if that's yeah. true. My perception. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, and I, I obviously want to know your thoughts on the next generation of boys. Cause that's what I worry about. Like when I see like the Gillette commercial or me too, like, yes, there's some men that should be punished. There's some men who are being falsely accused, but the boys growing up right now are going to grow up confused. And I'm worried about like the hyper nice guys of the next decade. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah I, well, I think you're right on. Um, yeah. I've seen every generation seeming to get softer and nicer. Um, when, when I go to programs that have a lot of millennials, and my son's a millennial. Um, I've got a 33-year-old son. Um, and, and I see a lot of the millennial men. Um, they're, they're really, for lack of a better word, attractive. You know, they've got their great haircuts. they got their hipster beards. You know, they're into fashion. Um, and, and they're almost prettier than the women. And, and, and I'm not, that's not a, a criticism, but, but it's almost as if the, the, the millennial men are more about appearances and what's hip and what's new. And, and there's not a lot of substance to that. And mm-hmm. now the other thing I noticed though is that a lot of the young men I meet are really bright and well informed and that they have access to information and wisdom and insight that just wasn't readily available when I was that age. So I, I see, and then the other piece I see in a lot of millennials is, is a lot of the bitterness and angriness of, you know, um, the incels, you know, they can't get a date, they can't get laid, um, you know, of even in the red pill movement, there's a lot of bitterness and angerness and kind of paranoia and defensiveness there of kind of just lashing out and kind of just staying stuck. And so I see a lot of potential in the millennial men. Um, and I see a tendency to get stuck in, in, you know, you grew up with the internet, you grew up having everything at your fingertips, and it's really easy to get stuck with your whole world being basically digital and online. And, and so I, I agree with you that probably even a younger generation of males that, you know, that, that may be double, but here is at least I think a positive thing happened. Excuse me. <coughs> I see a lot of younger fathers taking a lot more accountability for their children, especially their sons, 
than what I saw in my generation. In my generation and a little and generation after me, a lot of divorced dads, a lot of dads caught up in their work and career, a lot, a lot of dads just not that available uh, to their sons and, and because they didn't really know that was part of their job as a father. That's where I see a lot different within men of your generation. I hear men of your generation talking about having families, but being prepared for it, being prepared economically, being, you know, being more conscious in the choice of, of a woman they get with, um, being more available to, to their children. So I see that as a very positive thing, that perhaps this younger generation of boys might have more male connection, more access to information that actually um, um, rebutes kind of a lot of the messages they hear in school about competition is bad and boys are bad and toxic masculinity. So the good news is I think there's, there's, there's a counterbalance that, that is, is happening in the world. So maybe, maybe the younger boys that in the next generation and generation after, maybe, they, maybe we should be optimistic. Maybe they have a lot more chance and opportunity than what you did or I did. Yeah. And uh, I mean, do you think part of the, I guess the prettiness of the younger generations or this focus on appearances is coming from the fact that older generations had more challenges. Like it's the world becomes too You know, I'm going to take a stab at this because I don't know that I have it all figured out. Um, for me, you know, speaking in terms of masculine and feminine, I know those are hot topics, but we all have masculine, we all have the feminine side. And the way I break it down is, and very simply, this is very simplistic, masculine does, feminine is done too. And that's true, the masculine in us and the feminine in us. Now, the masculine is validated through internally through action. The feminine is validated externally through approval or recognition. And so that, that's why, you know, the proverbial women, you know, want to look prettier. Does, they, does my ass look fat in these jeans? You know, they want validated through that external, yes, I'm pretty, I'm attractive, I'm valued. The masculine in us and the masculine in women is validated through action that's taken, especially when facing challenge. So part of me, perhaps the prettiness in the younger generation of men is that they haven't faced a lot of masculine challenge. And so they're more in their feminine, seeking the, the validation of an identity. And so if I've got the great haircut or the great fashion or the great look to my beard, whatever, then I, I feel good about myself and I'm, I'm validated. The, the unfortunate thing with that external validation is a fucking roller coaster because we're not always going to look good. We're not always going to have people saying, hey, you're hot, you're attractive, you're cute, you know, love your eyes, love your hair, you know. And, and, and if you see women on their emotional roller coasters, a lot of that is because of the external validation is always like this. Whereas in our masculine selves, we can self-validate through constantly leaning into challenge and living at our edge. And that's where I think the younger generation is going to need the help of my generation, is learning how to, to live at their edge consciously challenge themselves to live out of their comfort zone that is self internally validating and um then we can still look good i try to look good but we don't get our identity from it and we don't get our ups and downs from it yeah uh, so like one of the theories why like social justice or trolling on the internet is at a peak other than the internet making it easier is that a lot of people in the first world don't have natural challenges like we certainly don't have to hunt for food you know, yeah. it is the easiest time, all those things. 
like how do you uh what do you recommend to someone who's like looking for to live on their edge and have challenges but their life doesn't doesn't put give force them to have challenges like how do you find yeah. your challenge that that's such a good question and maybe that's a question that we men especially need to keep asking for a lifetime i'm 63 and um you know, a lot of guys at my age are the retiring. People ask me all the time if I'm retired. I go, no, oh, I don't. I don't know what that is. Uh, I, I love what I do. I love my work. I'm still writing books, uh, still doing interviews, still doing workshops and seminars. And um, a year ago, and I've, I've repeated again this year, I joined a men's program uh, led by a guy named John Wineland, who's been a student of David Data for about ten years. Oh. And and basically the program is all about challenges, about living at our edge, right? This year we got fifty guys in there, all the way from guys my age down to guys in, in their mid twenties. And and the, the, the big theme of it is consciously living at our edge. Um we do a lot of um yogic, qigong, physical type things, but but also we stress, you know, having a big goal, living with intention having daily practices, having accountability groups, and, and thinking in terms of, you know, a, a phrase I love is how are we going to make a dent in the universe? Mm -hmm. And so I think we actually have to go out and find that. And that goes back to the tribe thing I was talking about earlier. Most of us men do not do that well, do these things well in isolation. And even though men nowadays have the internet and we have the illusion that we're connected, it's not the same as being one-on-one -on -one with another guy and facing a challenge together. And so, I mean, this could even just be getting to the gym and working on yourself physically. It could be doing martial arts. Uh, it could be you know finding a men's program, an entrepreneur's program that really challenges you to live at your edge because you're right. Most of us, don't have those that many just natural challenges that you know I got to fucking get up and do this every day just to survive right just just to you know to not be eaten alive by wild animals and not to starve to death and and you're right you know in, in third world I live in Mexico it's it's emerging you know a third world country um, they have internet they have cell phones and and you even see that here where even the younger men are kind of getting softer and lazier. Because it's not as challenging. It used to be, you know, just a generation or two ago here, you know, most men did not get out of, didn't finish junior high, didn't go to high school because uh, they had to get out of work. Their family needed it. Uh, the, the poverty level forced it. So they were challenged at a young age. So, so to answer your question, I think we have to consciously get out and challenge ourselves. And I think we need to find support systems, especially men's groups accountability groups, mastermind groups to help us do that, to stay focused, to stay accountable, and to do the things that, that are challenging and maybe that scare us and get us out of our comfort zone. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm actually take it down to like maybe the child development level. Because uh, you mentioned fatherhood. And it's actually funny. Like, so I, I just turned, I turned 30 last year. It's kind of switched my brain. It's like, oh, I do want to have a family at some point. I had a fun 20s. And I've been thinking about that. And actually, I was going to bring up my one personal thing is the one time I get nice guy syndrome still is when I meet a woman who I really think to be the mother of my kids. <laughs> okay. Anyone else. Uh, but, but it's something I think about a lot, actually, like, because when I work with people, so much comes from childhood. A lot of the nice guy imprinting comes from childhood. What do you recommend to fathers or to parents even in terms of like raising a not nice guy, raising a confident boy, especially in these times? 
That's a good question. And and that's that is kind of my background. My my doctorate is in marriage and family therapy, and I had a lot of child development uh stuff along the way. Um I heard one time the best gift a father can give his son, his children, is to love their mother. So maybe mm-hmm. number one, and this isn't always possible because a lot of times, you know, parents of the children are split. But the healthier relationship a child sees his parents have, the more that's going to prepare him for a good life. Um, he's going to see love. He's going to see his parents cooperating, working through problems, um, being connection, being connected. That's going to help him as he grows up. Because if we don't, if if we grow up and don't see loving, healthy relationships, it's harder to create them as we get older. Um, and the other piece is. You know, if our parents are messed up, you know, if they're addicted or depressed or angry or controlling, a child learns to adapt to that. And and unfortunately, those adaptions, those defense mechanisms, those survival mechanisms, we carry into adulthood. And then we tend to recreate them in our adult relationships because that feels normal. So, you know, if you grew up with an angry, critical parent, I can almost guarantee you'll grow up and you'll unconsciously find angry critical partners to try yeah. to try to have a relationship with it's what we know it's wired into our emotional uh, nervous system so you know i guess the best advice i'd give a kid is be born to healthy parents um, <laughs> but, but uh, we don't always have control over that so the other things that, that i think dads especially can do is just spend time with their sons what i remember is my dad had his issues he had boot issues and 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 but but he he worked hard, but he 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 worked at a job that he didn't like his entire life, and I think a a good part of that was it gave him the freedom to get off work early afternoon, and like he he'd come home and play ball with me, play catch. He attended all my ball practices or baseball, football, soccer. He took us camping as a family. Took me fishing, and um, those are really good memories. Those are really they, they created a real sense of a positive sense of self. And and I enjoyed those things, and I enjoyed doing them with my father. So now I, I look to be able to do those things with men as well. I did them with my sons as well. Um, so spending time. Now, I'm I'm parenting again. Uh, I, I married again about two and a half years ago. My wife's 20-something years younger than me. Uh, I've got an 11-year-old stepdaughter, a 13-year-old stepson. And, um, and I, I'm really enjoying being a parent kind of at, at an older age. I've got a 12-year-old granddaughter. So my granddaughter is the same age as my stepkids. I'm much more relaxed about it. And I realize I don't have to react to so much stuff. And I, I don't have to be kind of helicopter with my kids. And and what I find is that kind of relaxed style is um, lets me just kind of be with them, enjoy doing things with them. And I can kind of see better where they kind of need adjustment or support or help. For encouragement and and I think that that really benefits a child to be with a parent just spending time just having time with the parent and the parent not constantly being that helicopter you got to get your homework done you got to make straight A's you got to do this you got to clean your room you got to where the parent is more just helping them you know make the little adjustments to grow up to be who they are and to grow up with the skill sets to be a fully functioning happy adult so uh, is a is to a man who you know wants to be a good dad 
I'd say keep making good choices in terms of the women that you date and spend time with, because one of them will eventually become the mother of your children. And and so pick a quality woman who you think will be a, a good partner to you and a good mother to your kids. And as odd, odd as it sounds, it's kind of old school, but a lot of men are doing this nowadays of your generation, is they're waiting longer to have kids and even waiting longer to get in a relationship. And they're kind of getting out and making their mark in the world first. They're getting their education. They're getting their businesses built. They're getting themselves uh, moving ahead. And I think there's actually a real wisdom to that, to have a little bit of, of world wisdom and financial stability before you enter into a relationship, before you start having kids. Now, we can't all do it that way. Mm -hmm. um, there is a wisdom to it. So I, it sounds like you're on a good path. You're being very conscious and deliberate about how you go about this. Thanks. I want to do I want to do it well. But I mean, obviously don't know anything about parenting. The one thing I've picked up is that the only thing I'm sure about in being a good parent is getting your shit together as a person. Like that seems to be it helps. <laughs> it helps. You know, and, and we'll do that like I said, I'm I'm sixty three and I'm still working on getting my shit together. Uh, uh -huh. it, it it never ends. So I think if you have that attitude that everything is a powerful personal growth machine. Relationship dating is, marriage is, if you get married, um, parenting, you know, building your own business, moving ahead in the, in the work world. All of this is going to help us grow if we're very conscious and deliberate about it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, I don't remember who, where I read this. It might've been Robert Bly. Um, but one of the breaks from, for like males was the industrial revolution because before then boys could watch their dad farming or doing whatever he did it was right there and then once once men went to the factory suddenly there was a, a boy and boys didn't have something to the template anymore and uh it's probably where a lot of delinquency and a lot of things that have happened since then with men uh, has come from yeah and you're right and, and i see that here in mexico um that the fathers still are not particularly very involved in their kids that's a generalization and, and a lot of them you know they 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 get a woman pregnant and then, then they disappear. They're not even around. So there's a lot of moms that have never had the father of their children in their life, really. And I see the two things happen is the boys either kind of go off into delinquency or they turn into nice guys, you know, because they're, they're little mama's boys taking care of their mother. So they tend to go one direction or the other. And to me, a key part in that development is the dad, that if dads aren't around, that's kind of the two paths boys go on. But if dads are around, dads can help direct them towards that 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 living that that authentic, integrated, honest, challenged, masculine life. And again, that's that's a big role that dads play that they haven't been playing really since um, things changed. I think things changed for 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 men probably in two major phases. When as 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 humans move more from tribal to to agricultural or kind of an ownership model of things, owning land, cows, spouses, children, whatever. Um, and then, as you said, the Industrial Re Revolution, when men weren't farming anymore so much, raising their sons to get up early in the morning, go feed the chickens, go tend the cows, go plow the field. They weren't with their cousins, their uncles, their grandpas anymore. The men all left. And that just left the boys at home with mom and sisters. And, and, and men are crucial in helping young boys integrate into the, the scary world of the masculine. So that's going to be, keep being, I think, the major job of, of masculinity in males as we move forward. 
Uh, I want to go back uh, to, like, you mentioned MGTOW and Red Pill. And I was actually surprised, not really surprised to see Nice Guy here in your book mixed in in Red Pill discussions. But when I read your book, it felt so, like, kind of almost like a wholesome message for Recovery Nice Guys. And some of the stuff in Red Pill was, like, really harsh. Very similar message, but there's, I mean, even for me, I found, found it to be harsh. And I was curious what you thought about Red Pill in general and MGTOW, because your work is probably tied into those discussions. Yeah, I don't think you can separate it out. Um, you know, I, 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 I understand both. Um, well, as I said, you know, I spoke at a 21 convention uh, last year, and I'm going to speak again again this year. And I, I even got a couple of emails before I went and said, Dr. Glover, aren't you, aren't you afraid speaking at a red pill convention will ruin your reputation? I wrote back, I said, I, I, I can do a good enough job on my own, ruining my reputation. Um, and, you know, it was a great experience because so many of the guys there that I talked to, you know, came up and said, thank you for the book. So they are very, very much interwoven. I, I think men are looking for answers, especially young men are looking for answers. And um, my experience with the red pill is that, I, you know, I've, I've read a lot of Roland Tomasi's stuff and, and, you know, I don't really basically disagree with any of his principles. And, and I think if I had to boil it down, I would say red pill basically boils down is don't expect women to be looking out for your best interests. Mm-hmm. You take responsibility for looking out for your best interests. So I, I kind of boil things down simply and mm-hmm. go from there. Red pill, my, my belief is kind of spins it up and adds a lot more verbiage to it. And and I think there's a certain degree of um, bitterness that gets wound in, a certain amount of paranoia that gets wound in, and and a big dose of kind of heady intellectualism, to where guys can be you know up all night on a red pill forum, you know, intellectualizing and debating about spinning plates or you know women being the oldest child in the room, and you know, and and that doesn't serve us. Okay, so I I, I I do like that it is giving men a forum and and I get a lot of feedback from guys who like I, I did a, um, an interview just two nights ago with two guys I met at that convention and they're not hard, hardcore red pill, but that is part of who they are and what they teach. And a lot of guys after I got a lot of emails after the interview said, you know, thank you for kind of having a little bit more moderate tone. Um you know, yeah, there's there's validity to these messages, but we don't need to go down the rabbit hole with them. So, uh, I, I think it's I think it can be a very valuable forum and a way to get, wake men up and get them thinking. Um, and if if men start taking more accountability for their experiences in life and with women, um, and recognize that you know, women in general are not going to be looking out for a man's interest; they're going to be looking out for their own interest. And for us to just assume because we love them and give them things, they're going to, you know, love us back and look out for our own interests. Is is a false assumption. I think that's kind of behind the red pill. It's a covert contract. It's a covert contract. And so basically, they're saying, wake up to your covert contracts. Make your contracts overt and take good care of yourself. And then, um, you know, the MGTOW, men going their own way. Um, I can understand that. I. I, I could have been a charter member of that. I, I think probably every man who's had interactions with women, starting with mother on, you know, the struggles we all have in junior high, trying to get the attention of girls and then just trying to struggle to have a relationships in adulthood. Um, I think most of us have said at some point, I don't need women. I'm done with this stuff. I'm moving on. And 
and I don't I don't blame a man for having that perspective. I think my personal opinion is is that culture and society has squeezed us into a model that's not at all functional, um, and that is kind of this lifelong monogamous man and woman live together in bliss and harmony, you know, in the same house their entire lives. That shit doesn't work. Never has worked, and it has. It's only existed for a hundred or so years. You know, you mentioned back before the Industrial Revolution, men and women didn't spend all that much time together. Men were out, you know, in the field, the farm, working with you know the other men. The women, you know, did what women did. Going back to tribal times, the men went out hunting, hunted and gathered. The women kind of huddled and, and watched after the children and the old people. Then they came together, and then they went apart. We're now forcing men and women to get their connection, their love, their sex in this kind of model of, you you know, you got to be one person for life and you got to be able to live together and live in the same house and put up with each other. And um, we're not well equipped for that. Our evolution has not equipped us for what we're trying to do. So what happens then, we got a bunch of bitter women over here that are on, you know, posting on Me Too on social media and a bunch of bitter men over here that are posting on Red Pill and men going their own way. And and we're bitter at each other, but the, it's not the men's fault and it's not the women's fault. We're trying to do something that we're not equipped to do. And then we blame the others because, well, you know, you're not giving me sex. Well, you're you're treating me as a sex object. And it just keeps going back and forth. So I understand it all, but, and I understand the bitterness. I've been bitter myself. I've had to work on that piece. Um but if we can understand that we're trying to do something that we're not equipped to do, maybe we can have more compassion for our own gender and for the other gender as well, and a little bit more understanding. Uh, so at least that's that's what I hope might happen. Yeah, I like the way you boiled it down because I do think there's a lot of value in Red Pill, and a lot of my, my clients are Red Pill guys or former Red Pill guys. I think it's a great framework. It's certainly, uh, certainly reminding guys not to be weak at the very least. But like, and my only issue with it is that it's kind of like the bitterness you mentioned. Even if you play it perfectly, you're always on edge. Like you're always having to game your wife or your lovers, or you're always like in combat, which just doesn't seem sustainable in the long run. It doesn't, and and you know, somewhere in there, love is missing. And and I know it was interesting when I was at the the twenty one convention last year. You know, if you take red pill really to its kind of harshest extreme, um, you know, men probably would not be getting married. They, they, they probably would have these very kind of like say gamed relationships with women. But what, what struck me is the majority of the speakers there were married and were dads and a number have been divorced and remarried. And it's kind of like, all right, we, we are looking for something. And it's not the women's fault that we're not finding what, what we, we think what we're looking for. Um, but we want to blame the women for it. And they're blaming us for the same thing. They're looking for something that, that we can't give them, but they think we should give it to them. And, um, you know, so hopefully out of this, a discussion arises of how to do relationship more consciously and change some of our expectations. Like I, I've been telling couples for years as a marriage therapist. The best gift you can give your marriage is have each of you have good same-sex friends. The guy needs guy friends. The woman needs her, her female friends. And and that then takes the pressure off of the two of them having to be everything for each other. Um, I also tell men, because, you know, when I got divorced in 2003, um, you know, I got back out in the dating world and, and I had to learn how to date. I tried to do it very consciously. And by doing that, 
I, I was actually able to meet a, a lot of really good women. And the woman that I'm married to, I think she's fucking amazing. And you know, I wouldn't have married her. I wasn't ever going to get married again. But, I, you know, I, I changed my mind. I met somebody and thought, yeah, this is somebody I do want to be married to. And here's what I've been telling men for, for some time. Two things. Number one, if you don't know that you can set the tone and lead in your relationship with a woman. Now, Red Pill takes that same message and likes, you know, there's whole blog, you know, whole forums around set the tone and lead. Okay, I try to keep it a little more simple. If you don't know that you can set the tone and lead, i.e. consciously show up and invite a woman into a relationship in, 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 in ways that serve you both. And number two, if you don't know that you can be a good ender, that you can remove yourself, you know, that involves having good boundaries, letting the woman know what's acceptable, what's not in terms of her behavior, being willing to lovingly set the boundary, being willing to lovingly remove yourself if she can't live within those boundaries. Um, if you don't know, you can do those two things. Set the tone and lead in a conscious, loving way and uh, set good boundaries and be a good ender. I tell men it is stupid. It is suicide to get into a relationship with a woman. She'll eat you alive. And, and she'll make you bitter and angry. So that's on us. Because <clears throat> if I look back, and I had to do this exercise in my men's program this last year, I had to look back at all my past relationships. And there's been a few because I'm, I've been at this for a little while. And I had to take responsibility for where I failed to lead in each of those relationships. And one thing was for me that hit me that I... I, I kind of surprised me and this helped me actually let go of a lot of resentment towards women and towards my exes is that where i realized i failed to lead is the first time in every relationship i've had three marriages and several other long-term relationships the first time the woman behaved badly like didn't return phone calls for a couple of days you know just like ghosted or you know went off on me or out of the blue said she was breaking up with me for no fucking reason the first time those behaviors happen i needed to have said this is unacceptable if this ever happens again we are done if you want to hang out with me you cannot behave in this way you do that clearly and with love i've done it a few times and it was actually very powerful the women tended to fall more in love with me but my failures my my resentments and bitterness towards women in my past relationships were always the result of me failing to set those clear boundaries, clear expectations of how she has to behave if she wants to hang out with me. It's not control. It's not trying to manage her. It's just letting her know what are the parameters of her spending time with me. If I can do that consistently and hold on to those boundaries with love, the woman's either going to fail a second time and we're done, or she's going to get the message and show up in a more conscious, loving way herself. So that's on us. That's what I talk about when I talk about setting the tone and taking the lead. Don't mm -hmm. wait for a woman to behave well. Let her know what behaving well looks like, or maybe at least what not behaving well looks like and what's not acceptable. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, fear of leading or being in charge or being the dominant one. And I think a lot of, if there's any cultural conditioning that's certainly caused nice guy syndrome, is this idea that power dynamics or leading is this evil thing. Um, and actually, uh, when I told my my men's group that I was speaking with you, they sent me a bunch of questions. A lot of them were around boundaries. How do I know my boundaries? How do I set boundaries? And there's one one question I, that I thought was the most interesting, which was related. 
um, how do I get the, get over the fear of hurting people's feelings when I'm not being a nice guy? Which I think is, you know, ties to all, like, maybe you could address all of those. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah that's a big one. And I, I get that. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to people's feelings and reactions. That's probably partly why I became a nice guy. Other factors were involved, but, but that's part of it. I'm pretty sensitive to other people's responses. Now, the, the, the very basic answer I would give to the person asking the question is that you being an integrated male or you being authentic or you setting boundaries or, or you, you know, you living consciously is not going to have the big major negative effect on the people that you think. Now, it is true that if you start making changes in your life, you start evolving, growing, a differentiating is a psychological term for it, of you deciding what feels right to you, what works for you, and then you doing that. You're going to get resistance between your own ears. That's what this question is about. Mm -hmm. I'm anxious about making changes. We're going to get resistance between our own ears, and we might get some resistance from outside of us. You know, the proverbial crabs trying to pull us back in the bucket while we're making our escape. Um, that's normal and natural. Sometimes the people outside of us adjust to the changes we make. You know, as a young man, a 30-year-old man, you've already made changes over the last five years of your life. You're probably going to make a lot more in the next five years. Some people close to you may be a little bit uncomfortable with those. Sometimes mm -hmm. our parents are. Sometimes our peers are. Uh, but we got to do what's right for us. And then we have to learn to soothe ourselves so that we can take action rather than managing our anxiety by trying to manage people and situations. And that's a, that's, that's a real important tool that, that I, I, I do in my work with nice guys. When I actually started talking about this concept of self-soothing in my men's groups, you know, 15 years ago when I was doing a lot of men's groups, like almost every group, the guys would say, can we talk about self-soothing again? Because that's such a huge nice guy thing. We have this inner anxiety that if somebody's upset at us, we've done something wrong, all hell's going to break loose. You know, they're going to leave us, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so we got to learn to soothe that. And uh, as I said, I've been working on this stuff 25 years. I still work at soothing my anxieties. I, I, I had a relationship a few years ago that whenever, you know, the woman, she kind of could be kind of moody at times. And, you know, I'd say, everything okay? And she goes, you know, she'd tell me, you're so fucking narcissistic. She said, not everything is about you. Sometimes I'm just in a bad mood. You didn't do anything wrong. And then she said, there's only room for one girl in this relationship, and that's me. So you quit being so sensitive. And she was right. I, you know, I'd, I'd see that she was kind of withdrawn or in a mood, and I'd kind of get a little anxious, and I'd ask her about it. And she was just preoccupied with something else, right? So we have to learn to soothe ourselves. And, and that's a big part of, of really breaking free from the nice guy syndrome is that practice of self-soothing. Like having your own back, or is there a set of techniques that you? Well, there are techniques. Yeah, breathing is the best one I know. When we're anxious or stressed, we quit breathing. We get really shallow, and and that actually uh, because of the imbalance between the uh, uh, carbon dioxide and, and and oxygen, we get more stressed and anxious. So, kind of put your shoulders back. You know, reach your hands behind your back. That opens your shoulders. Slow your breath. You know, breathe up. Kind of practice breathing into your belly, like you're breathing up through your asshole into your belly. Just fill your belly with your chest open and wide. That immediately calms you. It slows the brain down. It's, it, it, it slows everything down. That is my number one go-to technique is that I just breathe. Um, another one is a, a, something I got from a book 30 plus years ago called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. 
I read that when I was going through my first divorce. And and the main theme of that book is you'll handle it. No matter what happens, you'll handle it. You've handled everything else in life, you'll handle this. So I've I've been practicing that mantra for years. When I feel anxious, I'll handle it. No matter what happens, I'll handle it. And those two pieces, the breathing and the reinforcing, I'll handle it. This person's upset at me, I'll handle it. You know, my taxes are due, I'll handle it. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm on deadline. I'll have my internet crashes. I'll handle it. You know, whatever it is, you got to remind yourself you'll survive. It. You'll be okay. So those are my go-to self-soothing tools. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I never heard that term, but I yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, you mentioned two things that I, maybe are a little, well, the first thing uh, you mentioned how uh, we're not really uh, equipped for men and women spending a ton of time together. What are your thoughts on monogamy in the traditional nuclear family? Um, that they don't work very well. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, again, I'm a marriage. I, I had my PhD in marriage and family therapy, 29 years old, and and nothing I learned in that program equipped me to do marriage, which is kind of ironic, um, because we're not equipped for it. And it just, you know, the short version. This is at least my spin on it is that, you know, probably for at least a million and a half years of human evolution, we were tribal. Everything was communal. Everything was shared. We were hunters and gatherers who moved around. You know, the, the, the men and the able-bodied people went out and hunted and gathered, came back, shared it all. Sex was communal. Everybody took care of the needs of the kids. There wasn't this pair-bonded dynamic. Um, even though you know, some of some of the writers on, on, you know, pick up and things like that, you know, talk about women having a choosy gene and being choosy, wanting, you know, the most capable man. No, that's bullshit. The, the women were taken care of every man in, by every man in the tribe, and the man had access to every woman in the tribe. It, it, was, it was everything was communal. For Have you read Sex at Dawn? I've read Sex at Dawn. Um, good book. Recommend it. Um, so for at least, let's say, a million and a half years, everything was communal. There was no pair bond. And as I mentioned, you know, about 10,000 years ago, when, when we moved more to, from a hunter-gatherer tribal to, to agricultural, where we, we started staying in one place and owning stuff, that's really where what we call the patriarchy began. The patriarchy was really about all, all about ownership stuff, ownership of wives, ownership of kids. And people still didn't live very long, okay? And so that model didn't work well for meeting the needs of men or women. So... For a billion and a half years, we were tribal. You mentioned sex at dawn. And, you know, it talks about that communal dynamic uh, of, of all needs were taken care of by the tribe. For about 10,000 years, a, a tiny, you know, pinprick of time comparison to a million and a half, we've, we've practiced more of an ownership pair bonding model. And then religion came along about 6,000 years ago and then really wove, the, you know, this sin and morality into, you know, monogamy and one man, one woman for life. But, but in general, people didn't live very long. Um, and, and as I said, it's only been about 100 to 200 years that men and women have even been in close proximity and each other's best friends, you know, like all the time. So how we're trying to do it is not built into our DNA. So my thoughts on monogamy. My wife and I have chosen a monogamous relationship. Uh, we talk about having the container of our sexual energy and all of our sexual energy stays within the container. And... Does that mean I never see an attractive woman? Of course I do. Does that mean she never has a thought? Of course she does. But we don't, we don't run. We don't let our energy seep out. We keep it all in that container. And because all of our sexual energy stays in the container, um, 
it's really hot and and there's trust and so our sexual life has a lot of variety to it i.e how it maybe used to be you know uh, you know a million years ago there's a lot of variety even though we're monogamous with each other um we're very impulsive with each other you know we'll act on impulse we don't hold back and because of that trust we, we can do that really freely now what i say is that that monogamy is not wired into our system it's challenging and it's also a powerful personal growth machine by my wife and I choosing to be monogamous, it forces us to stay conscious and grow. Most people try to do monogamy real unconscious. Um, you know, the, the men are living in their own fantasy world, off looking at porn, jerking off. The women are, you know, flirting with other men, getting attention on Facebook, getting attention, reading, you know, gothic romance novels, you know, or investing all their energy in the kids or work. You know, all the energy goes everywhere else. So the only way I know how to do how to make monogamy work is a very conscious decision by both people to keep every bit of their sexual energy in that that tight container. Nothing seeps out. I don't masturbate. I don't look at porn. I don't live in a fantasy world. Now, my wife and I do share a lot of fantasy together. We'll talk mm -hmm. about a lot of really dirty stuff, but we don't go off into our own little fantasy world. And that's the energy seeping out. So my philosophy is monogamy is challenging because it's not natural. And if we do it consciously, it's, it's really powerfully growth producing. Hmm. That's, uh, I want to think about that a lot because, so I read Sex at Dawn, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or something. And I've basically been in open, non-monogamous situations since, until I started thinking about kids and I'm yeah. reading a lot about it. It seems like, well, maybe monogamy is the most stable family environment and I keep thinking about sex at dawn and how it's unnatural and I've gotten it's, it's had my mind spinning honestly for a long time so I appreciate that reflection I don't know what I'm going to do well it's, it, it's a good question and probably you're right is that probably if you're going to raise kids doing it in in you know a contained relationship might be best I I don't know I you know I'm I'm I, I know guys that you know do open relationships and and there can be kids involved um, in my mind, open relationships are like 10 times more work than a monogamous relationship. Monogamy is hard. Open relationships have more rules, you know, more drama going on, more parts interplaying. And that's a powerful personal growth machine as well, you know, just yeah. to stay conscious of that. So I don't think one's better than the other, but both require a lot of consciousness to make them work well. And, mm -hmm. and that's me, the key component. And, um, you know, I'm, the, the book I'm writing right now um, around something I call positive emotional tension, I'll be talking more about that, how, 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 to, how to make monogamy work by creating that container where all sexual energy stays within the relationship. And when it doesn't get leaked out or dissipate elsewhere, it really creates a pressure cooker of, of, of sexual connection and intensity that I think will, will last for years in a relationship. Now, uh, along with that, there has to be impeccable honesty and integrity by everybody involved. I don't lie to my wife. I don't hide anything from her. I have no secrets. I don't tell her half-truths. I don't leave any piece of information out. I don't go somewhere and say I went here. Um, and, and she's as impeccably honest with me as well. And that is crucial in order to make this kind of thing work. Because what I found as a marriage therapist is most couples start lying to each other really early on. They actually start lying to each other when they start trying to impress each other on that first date. 
you know, I, I'm like this, I'm like this, I'm like this, you know, and then, you know, three months later, they're nothing like that with that person anymore. Those, those are all lies. Our trying to impress somebody are, are the lies we, we, we tell each other. So it requires impeccable honesty to make monogamy work as well. It almost seems like a, sounds like a spiritual path the way you talk about it, like the impeccable honesty and, and uh, not even thinking about someone else type of thing. Uh, yeah, it sounds it, it, it's, it's, you know, okay, we're talking about challenges, you know, earlier. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. It's, it's a tremendous challenge. But I know practicing this in my marriage with my wife, has already grown me tremendously. And, it, and it, it also helped me see where I needed to go work on myself and where I needed help and where I needed tribe and where I needed men and where I needed practice. Um, and, and so now I, I do like some daily practices of meditation, qigong, some yoga, all of those I've had to integrate in to take better care of myself to show up in the ways I want to show up in my relationship. And, you know, I would say that the thing, the toxic thing that I brought to my past relationships was not being impeccably honest. Um, I would lie. I'd leave things out. I, I would, you know, try to do anything to avoid conflict, to avoid disapproval. And, um, and, and that, that's a big part of what broke all my previous relationships is not being impeccably honest. So I thought, okay, this time around, I'm giving it one more try. I'm, I'm going to do my best to show up as, as, one of my mantras is nothing hidden, nothing half-assed. You know, if, if I can't do something like with my wife being a little bird hovering over me, I'm not going to do it. And that's really helped create a lot of integrity. And if I can't tell my wife this, that I'm going to do it or did do this, if I can't know it completely, I probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is a big piece if you're going to make monogamy work is keep all the sexual energy in the container and practice impeccable honesty and and demand the same thing of the woman that you're with that's where you can leave when's your next book coming out uh well actually you asked i have one that's coming out uh in june on it's called dating dating essentials for men that's coming out on amazon in june the one i'm writing called positive emotional tension um i'm still writing it so don't ever release it my goal is to be done with the rough draft um somewhere between October and December of this year. We're, we're talking right now in May. So um, it's about halfway done. Uh, okay. It's something I've been teaching for quite a while. Uh, so I'm excited. about. I think it will be as much of a game changer as no one, Mr. Nice. Cool. Well, I hope it's out before I try monogamy, but we'll see. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I have one last, like, it's, it's a, this last question topic might be a little abstract, but it's, you, you said something earlier about, um, mothers and not, like that's the first uh, female relationship and uh, boys are spending more time with their mothers perhaps and something i've been playing with um because a lot of a, a couple of guys recently have been speaking to me about having a fear of their mother not being able to let go like they always feel like their mom's in their head even though they're grown men and it's made me think of i don't know if you're familiar with joseph campbell's um secondary father archetype which like ties into like robert wise stuff like seeking a secondary male mentor i was thinking like is there something to seeking a secondary mother, like the secondary type of woman that you're you're after as like a way of freeing yourself from your mom? So it's been like a problem I've been playing with on behalf of guys reaching out to me. Okay. Um, well, I'll pour a, a few more things in there to mess this up even more. Um, probably the most misunderstood, or I don't know if misunderstood is the right word, 
a concept that I present in No More Mr. Nice Guy in the book that I think I get the most questions about um, because maybe it's kind of a fuzzy concept, kind of like you're talking about, and because maybe I didn't have a lot of clarity. It's something I call being monogamous to motherhood uh, or mono to mom, I'll call it. And that is, you know, and going back to kind of the Robert Bly and, and the, the tribal initiation, um, you know, he talks about this. I, I talk about it in, in my book as well, that in tribal times, you know, the, the mothers primarily did raise all the children, the boys until, you know, adolescence, whatever that right time of rite of passage was. And then the men came, basically kidnapped the boys, drug them off, did some masculine rites of passage with them. And then from about 12, 13 on, you know, the boys were with the men. They were men. They were considered men once they went through the rites of passage. And so they weren't hanging out in, I call it, the nursery of feminine validation, sinking mommy's approval, teacher's approval, women's approval. Um, and so we don't have that. And so what happens um, is that often mothers get a lot of their sense of connection and validation through their children and, and for some mothers through their sons. And so when the mother has an inappropriately um, intense emotional connection with her son, that the boy gets bonded in an unhealthy way with his mother. And we want to get Freudian about it. Pardon? Uh, it's called enmeshment, right? Enmeshment, yeah. It's, it's emotional enmeshment. And, you know, if we get a little Freudian about it, every little boy does want to possess his mother, but he fears his father's reaction. But I think what every little boy fears is that they'll, they'll, they're bad. They're bad for wanting to possess their mother. But if, if mom has healthy boundaries and isn't kind of hooking a hose up to her child to take care of her emotional needs or isn't controlling or absent or whatever, the boy can move through that process of wanting to possess his mother and then be initiated by the men into the masculine world. And then I think he can go connect with other women in very healthy ways. But when you're monogamous to mom, you never break out of that initial bond that like, you know, you, you're supposed to be there for mother. You're, you're supposed to have her approval. You're supposed to live for her. And um, in, in the movie Fight Club and in the book Fight Club, you know, there's the scene where, you know, the, the, the two protagonists are talking. And one of them says, I, you know, I need to get me a girlfriend. And the other one says, we're a generation of, of men raised by women. And I don't think another woman's the answer we're looking for. Um, Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote that book, also wrote a book called um, Choke, um, yeah. a, a guy that, that fakes choking on food so people will rescue him and then give him money. Um, but but he also goes to, to sex addicts groups and have sex with the women in the sex addict groups. He's messed up. But his mother says he was born of immaculate conception, and they didn't really have a father. His mother's mentally ill. And he says in there, when your mother is your first spouse, every other woman after that feels like a mistress. And and, mm. and all Nick really nails, you know, what men are going through. And mm. I love his books. And so that that's what happens when mom is our first spouse. It's kind of like we feel like we're cheating on every other woman, every other woman that we're with. And so we we tend to pick women that that we can't get fully in with, either they're not available uh, or we'll kind of segregate our sexuality. We'll kind of do a Madonna whore thing where the good women 
we don't show them our sexual side. We kind of push that underground because mom's a good woman. We couldn't show her our sexual side. And so our sexual energy goes underground into porn, into fantasy, maybe into hookers, massage parlors, whatever, because you know, we don't show that to good women. So we, 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 we segregate out, you know, who women are. And we hide our sexuality from the women we want approval of. And that's part of the kind of more of the hot monogamy thing is that if you can bring all of your, if you can integrate the Madonna and whore, if you can break the monogamous bond to mother, you can get nasty as hell with the woman you love and bring that whole, you know, let her be your Madonna and your whore, your good woman and your bad woman. And that's part of what keeps this so exciting. But you're right. We have to do that work around mother. and. You know, I, I probably still have some of that connection around my mom of being the, the golden child, the good son, the rescuer. I still act that out in my adult relationships. Um, but I've done a lot of work on that. And the primary work I've done is connecting with other men because it was the men I needed to, to lead me away from that too tight monogamous bond with my mother as my first spouse. So you, you wanted to get kind of out there with it. So yeah, yeah. that <laughs> I'm remembering like fights with exes where she'd yell like, you're like enmeshed by your mother. That's why you're a love avoid and you don't love me. And I was like, I didn't expect to get hit. <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to tell you every significant relationship I've had in which the woman got to know my mother, every, every woman, including my present wife says, I think your mother is jealous of our relationship. Now, when mm -hmm. every woman you're with says, I think your mother is jealous of our relationship, they're probably an oracle of truth. <laughs> They're probably telling you something that you need to pay attention to. And and I think all the women were right that, that you know, my mom expected me to be her good little man and be different from my father and, and you know, be the good man that, that she didn't see in my dad. And um, and that created an unhealthy bond. And I know it's had an effect on me in terms of the women I've chosen and how I interact with them. Hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, I thought for a while that personal development is kind of a way to complete your childhood. Like a lot of the things that a lot of our insecurities are like being trapped in childhood. And the way you're putting this is like, if you don't have that separation from mom and the rites of passage with other men, you're kind of still a kid. You're still a 12 year old who hasn't. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I, I think that that really nails it. And that also gives us direction. All right. How do I then need, and because I'm a therapist by training, but I don't think we even necessarily have to go around and dig, you know, dig around in all the muck of how mommy did this or daddy didn't do that. That stuff's naturally going to come up if we start doing our work. But we don't have to go looking for it, per se. I think if we find out, if we look at where am I stuck right now? Am I stuck with living with passion? Am I stuck in terms of how I do relationship? Am I stuck in terms of not connecting well with men? Confronting that stuckness and addressing it will bring up the old stuff and we, we can take a look at it if you know especially if we have you know a coach or a therapist or, or a group to help us do that um but yeah i think for us men it really does come back to most of us never had the tribe of men to come pull us out of the nursery where you know nowadays where most of us most young men you know are smoking dope you know surfing the internet looking at porn, watching television, seeking female approval, blah, blah. That's the nursery. That doesn't validate, it doesn't fulfill, and it doesn't attract women either. Um, and so we need that masculine 
tribe to initiate us. And again, like we talked about at the beginning of the interview, that can come, that tribe can come in a lot of different ways. It might come from, you know, your group of guys that, you know, you go out to hang out with. It might be your 12-step group. It might be your divorce group. It might be your entrepreneurial group. It, it can take a lot of different forms, but we need it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glover. I'm going to listen to this again. I, <laughs> a lot of things hit me that I have to think about. Um, I'm sure most people have heard of your, your book. I know you have other books on Amazon. Are there, is there any other place uh, people can check out your work? Well, yeah, just, just go to drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R. All my stuff's on drglover.com. If they just Google No More Mr. Nice Guy or Google Robert Glover, I come up in all the top spots. And, and as I mentioned, my new book, Dating Essentials for Men, um, is they can pre-order it now. This is uh, will be downloaded uh, June fourth, and then I'm I'm working away on the next one around positive emotional tension. Awesome. And do you live out in Mexico, or are you staying there for a while? I, I do I do live in Mexico. I own a okay. home here. Uh, my wife is Mexican. Uh, I get back to the states a lot. I travel quite a bit. Uh, still have family up in the Seattle area. My mother's still alive. My son and granddaughter live up, up in that area. So, yeah, Mexico's home now. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again so much. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. Thank you. Had a good time. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to Rwando.com. Catch me on social media at Rwando. And please do not forget to subscribe.